The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that knows that April showers bring May flowers, and May flowers bring pilgrims. Here is the cat. But you don't want to have an April shower in your pants. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today here in the garage fridge, we still have some swinging brews left right there on the top shelf. Swinging is an 8.5% ABV pineapple upside down cake imperial shandy that will make you sweet enough to take home. It's rich, warm, and filled with sugar and spice. This shandy might just be your dream come true. Garage grade four out of five bottle caps. And here's some of our dreams come true filled by our good friends First up, a shout-out to Steve Bumbarder in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And a big We Like a Jib to Susan from Calvert County, Maryland. And last but certainly not least, Captain, we have a shout-out that goes to Liz from Plymouth, Massachusetts, America's hometown. Everyone we just mentioned, they went to our website. They helped us fill up the fridge for this week's show, and for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-W-R-U-N, Beer Run. If you haven't picked up Nick's first book, you need to do so. Check out truecrimegarage.com for all the details, and you can order that on Amazon or wherever you like to get your books. It's also available on Audible, and that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. On April 15th, 1986, 36-year-old Linda Moore was home alone while her husband was at work. 
At around 2 p.m. that afternoon, she was seen in the yard by someone passing by the home. Approximately an hour to an hour and 15 minutes later, her husband found her dead in their living room, in the entranceway between the kitchen and the living room. The autopsy would tell us that she was stabbed more than two dozen times. It's believed that 25 times approximately is how many blade bladed weapon injuries she suffered. Evidence at the scene indicated that she was engaged in a very violent struggle with her assailant. And to go further against her husband, Stephen Moore in the suspicion that was kind of piling on him in the early hours into the investigation was that police could find no signs of forced entry into the home or that nothing was stolen from the home. There was no ransacking that took place within the house itself. Initially, detectives thought that the Linda Moore case would be solved relatively quickly. That was 1986. Here we sit in the garage, Captain, 2023, and this case has still not been solved. And one of the things that you brought up, or or multiple things that you brought up on yesterday's episode, was the actions of the husband seemed a little suspicious to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But one of the actions that I don't think is that suspicious is he's at a work site. His house isn't that far away, a few miles. He has to get a check to pay this dump truck driver so the dump truck driver can take it back to the landfill to pay them. But he could simply, if he knew that his wife was murdered or if he knew that he murdered his wife, he could have simply drove back to the house, got the checkbook, and came back. But he brings somebody to the scene with him. Or he could have conveniently sent the driver without going himself as well, and let the driver discover his wife in the home, making it look less suspicious on Stephen Moore. Because as you pointed out, and as we all know, police are usually suspicious of the person that finds the body. They're suspicious of the husband, and here you have that person as one in the same. There were and remain to this day a lot of people in that area, the local area there, that believe that Stephen Moore is and should be the prime suspect in his wife's murder. In fact, there was a rumor that because given his job and the nature of his job as somebody that owns a home remodeling business, that he would have discarded of the murder weapon, possibly at one of his construction sites, buried it somewhere, somewhere very difficult for the authorities to find. Well, wasn't he also put it in a pool correct i don't i could not figure out if that was on their property or if it was at another property yeah looking into this everybody that i talked to that knew anything about this case said well it's most likely that if the husband did it he took he took the murder weapon and he buried it where he was going to build a pool but like you said it's very unclear was he going to build the pool on their property or was that for a client? And a lot of people have said throughout the years that his wife was outside sunning, uh, sunbathing. And it, when I picture that, I immediately think somebody sitting by the pool, this is Vermont. 
April 15th. Yes, it was a warm, sunny day that day, but I don't know how warm it could have been. Uh, but we do know that she was seen outside sunning. I don't know if that involved a pool or not. But what's key here, Captain, is that the murder weapon is not found at the scene, not found at the Moore household. And you would think with police being on the scene so quickly that they are actively looking for that knife, for that murder weapon upon their arrival and when they are going through the scene. We know that the kids were sent away that day, and we know that Steven stayed behind and sat down at the table, at the kitchen table with detectives and answered all of their questions. Again, they thought that he was emotionless, uh, but a lot of people would come forward and tell detectives later that that's just kind of how the guy was wired. Right. That he, he was not the type to show a lot of emotion. He was a very controlled, very restrained type of person. And so this would go along with his personality. The other thing that we need to be clear on here is regardless of what the rumors say, and unfortunately, if anyone's wife is ever murdered or girlfriend is killed, the boyfriend and husband is always going to be rumored to be a suspect, even if he's the, the best guy in the world. It's always going to be a rumor, plain and simple. Well, and if you're law enforcement, I think, okay, he's he doesn't seem all choked up. He's not crying about this. Uh, we can note that, but that doesn't that doesn't mean anything necessarily because we've seen on the other hand where people are calling nine one one, they're hysterical, they're creating a big scene when they're being questioned, and they're actually the ones that are responsible for the murder. And he doesn't lawyer up, and he cooperates fully from what I could see with the police in their investigation. He well, asked he's asked to take a lie detector test. He takes it, he passes. No signs of deception at all in the lie detector test. He's asked to take, give a blood sample. Right. They take his clothing in as evidence. The only blood that they find on his clothing belongs to his wife. They don't find any of his blood or anybody else's blood on his clothing, just his wife's blood. And he did say that he moved her and that he checked for a pulse before calling for the ambulance, and we know that he had blood on him because he left blood on the receiver to the phone when he called the ambulance. When he was gone, comes back to his house and then goes to get a sandwich or whatever, that goes back to the work site. Nobody's saying that he changed clothes. So you start you start tightening this window of possibilities of, of him being able to even be responsible for this crime. Well, and keep in mind, too, he is in full view of the authorities of the detectives within minutes, not an hour, within 30 minutes, roughly, of finding his wife. And they do not notice any cuts on him. He doesn't look like he's been in any type of struggle. We're talking about minimum 25 stab wounds or cuts to the victim. We've said this a dozen times, and we'll say it a dozen more given the nature of this attack one would expect the killer to likely have cut himself or receive some type of injury during the during the struggle what's crazy is the viciousness of this attack and the blitzkrieg style of the attack 
So the medical examiner in Vermont would tell us that Linda Moore, while she had all of these injuries, and this was a very vicious attack, it was a very rapid and very quick attack. They believed that the attack only took approximately 45 to 60 seconds from start to finish. Wow. And police were were thrown off by the scene because given the given the nature and the brutality of this attack, there was not like there wasn't furniture knocked over. There wasn't obvious signs of a struggle other than our victim on the floor. And I think what happened here, Captain, is probably from the time that the assailant and the victim engaged one another, it probably took place right where she was found. And being told being told by the medical examiner that the attack probably lasted a minute or less, it's not inconceivable that the attack took place very quickly in this very isolated spot in the entryway between the kitchen and the living room. And thus, because it didn't expand beyond that space in the home, that none of these other items were disturbed. Stephen Moore was very cooperative with police. And so regardless of what the rumors are here that have lasted all of these years, there's a couple things that we need to point out. And this is when I, I would wish, and I know that police don't get in the habit of clearing anybody publicly. Right. But I feel like this is one of those situations where I see so much more evidence to suggest that this guy just didn't do it. He, he did not have enough time to arrive home before the dump truck driver, kill his wife, even though it took place very quickly, and then discarded the murder weapon all before telling his worker to come in, calling the ambulance, and then calling the police and everybody arriving on scene. He just didn't have time to cover it all up had he killed her right when he got home that day. When you and wonder, then the problem, go ahead. And I wonder if this report is accurate or if they're going here. We have this full picture. If the husband is responsible, the attack would have had to happen very quickly. So we're going to surmise that it did to keep him as a suspect. Well, and keep in mind, we know his timeline for that day. He's with his workers. We know that he talked to his wife. So, and we know that she's seen alive by other eyewitnesses that right. don't have a dog in the fight at 2 p.m. At 2 p.m., he's either on the at the work site or he goes to a local store to pick up a quick sandwich. Obbies, we got the meats. And that happens all before, all prior to 2 p.m. So his only opportunity to attack and kill his wife would be when he arrived home shortly after or right around three o'clock that day when his worker pulls in just minutes behind him. The other problem with that too is what the experts would tell us. So the medical examiner is going to tell us that Linda Moore was killed between the hours of noon and 3 PM that afternoon. The ambulance driver who arrives on scene said to police, she has been dead for a minimum of 30 minutes, probably more than an hour. If she had been dead less than 30 minutes, I would have transported her in the ambulance to the hospital, 
trying to save her life, trying to bring her back. Right. He says when he arrives on the scene, he quickly recognizes and understands that she's been dead for quite some time. She's beyond any opportunity of saving her. And now it's a crime scene. As you pointed out yesterday, the, the EMT was very careful to not contaminate the crime scene. The detective, when he arrives, he's on scene approximately 30 minutes, maybe 25 minutes after Stephen Moore arrives on scene. And he says the same thing. It's not his first rodeo. He assesses the situation and says to himself, this woman's been dead for a couple of hours. Right. So you have multiple people telling us and the medical examiner saying that she was killed between noon and three. Well, it would appear by what the detective and the EMT is saying that she was killed closer to the noon hour than the three o'clock hour. And she's seen alive at 2 p.m., according to eyewitnesses or close to 2 p.m. So that, in my opinion, Captain, makes it practically impossible that Stephen Moore is the killer. So the Moore's house was... uh was basically a landmark mm-hmm. when it comes to this country road. And again, the town, pretty small, very small population, but this is a town that people pass through to get to busier towns. So there was a lot of people that saw her out sunbathing that day. Yes, this is Route 121. It's heavily trafficked. And what police did was they set up roadblocks as well as putting out request for help and for information on the news and through the newspapers saying everybody that drove past the Moore's home, anybody traveling on 121 on that day, April 15th, 1986, that Tuesday, especially in the afternoon, call us, tell us if you saw anything. Did you see Linda Moore outside? Did you see any vehicles parked at the home? Right. Things of that nature. And again, they set up roadblocks for, on two different occasions for two days and asked everybody that they stopped. Do you typically drive through here? Were you passing through here on April 15th? If so, did you see anything? And what, what they end up getting is they get at least 15 different stories. I don't want to say 15 eyewitnesses because I think that some of these statements were given and they were multiple eyewitnesses saw the same thing on a couple of the these cases so there were 15 different things of interest that the police learned from either people calling in and telling them what they saw or people they spoke to at the roadblocks well let's dive into these 15 items that law enforcement found yes because these are going to be 15 different things that were reported by different eyewitnesses that you need to check off. You need to vet and you need to figure out why person A, person B, person C was in the area, spotted in the area on the afternoon that Linda Moore was killed. And what happens, I'll give you the short version of it, Captain, because there was a bunch of reports of, oh, I saw a car and a man walking. He was parked on the street, not at the Moore house, but uh, a vehicle of this description and a man walking nearby and a person reported uh, no vehicle, but somebody walking more than one person reported somebody with a knapsack 
which I, I, I wish that we'd get a better description of the individual with the knapsack. Uh, it was a, a man with cheap glasses and a knapsack. How would you know that the glasses were cheap? That, that's a good question. Uh, reported uh, reportedly, uh, that's what the witness statements are. It's weird too what witnesses will add to a statement, right? The the necessary information is I saw a guy. We'll describe him. He was uh, a white male wearing glasses, had a backpack or a knapsack. Uh, but it's weird what witnesses will add in. Clearly, somebody added in. Look like cheap glasses. Yeah. Um, I'm a glasses connoisseur i could spot a good pair of glasses from from a good distance away i mean i I would have to take the glasses and put them in my mouth and swish them around to know for sure if they're cheap glasses there was also a report of men two men jogging in the area now after four days this is key here after four days after the murder of linda moore police had tracked down 13 of the 15 items that they wanted to check off their box, uh, witness statements that they needed to vet. So 13 of these items, they had tracked down the person, found out who it was that was in the area, vetted their story, and then checked their alibis and checked their timelines for the day and everything checks off. So after four days, the only two things that they had left that they couldn't verify or figure out or confirm who these people were, were the two men that were seen jogging in the area and the man that was by himself with the glasses and the knapsack. Well, in fairness, the guy with the cheap glasses didn't want to come forward because he didn't want everybody in town to know that he had cheap glasses. What's interesting, though, here, Captain, is none of this information is public at this time, four days into it. Right. On day five, this is when I think we see a big shift in the public awareness of the investigation or something that the public should have picked up on. Because in the Linda Moore investigation, the detective is saying to the newspapers on day five, unless we catch a big break... I'm not so confident that this is going to be solved soon, right? Those words should tell us that we've checked out the husband. We're kind of moving on from that angle at this point, even though they've never publicly cleared him. Right. But that's what that statement should tell you because the detectives say when they arrive on the scene, when they interview the husband, when they look at the scene, the first thing that everything that tells them in their experience, this is a domestic situation. We will be able to arrest somebody rather quickly in this investigation because it's likely the husband. And here on day five, we hear a different story. Unless we catch a big break soon, we're not confident that we're going to solve this thing relatively quickly. Well, think about it. If you're law enforcement, uh, the husband was off the work site for a time period. Okay, did he change his clothes? No. The, the husband's timeline is very tight. Don't know if he would have had an opportunity to do, to do so. The husband could have sent the d- dump truck driver back to the house by himself, or he could have just got the checkbook and came back. Nobody needs to go to the house, but he invites him to the house. Oh, the... The husband calls his lawyer. 
Well, it's his business lawyer, but also his best friend. The, the husband is being cooperative. The husband takes a lie detector. The husband passes that lie detector. So even though maybe some of his actions initially seemed a little strange, the, the further they went down that rabbit hole, the more he looks like an innocent person. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. All right, we are back. Cheers, mates, to the people in the back, to the people in the front, to the left and the right, and most of all, cheers to you, Colonel. Cheers to the people that are up front and center. Mm. A written description of this man that ZZ Top would have described as wearing a pair of cheap sunglasses. Right. Uh, these are actually eyeglasses, but a written description of this man was released to the general public about a week or so after Linda Moore's 
murder. Now, unfortunately, as the case sits, as of March of 1987, so a little less than 11 months later, police are releasing a composite sketch of this individual. They're not calling him a suspect. They're calling him a person of interest, somebody that they would like to talk to, a possible witness that may have information that could help further their investigation. And this is coming from the Vermont State Police, but the 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 general description is rather vague, but it tells us that they are looking for someone that was spotted by several reputable witnesses in the area of the Moore home on the day of the murder. In fact, uh, this person is believed to have been spotted close to what is believed to be the possible time of death. So this newspaper article that comes out in 1987, they cite the time of death between 1230 and 3 p.m. that afternoon. And they're stating that this person was seen in the noon hour. So about 1240 p.m. is one of the statements. So early that afternoon near the Moore home, the description is a man described as being a white male, five foot eight inches to five foot 10 inches tall, age 20 to 25 years old. Again, a white male with dark hair, eyeglasses, and a dark or blue knapsack. Remember, we had talked about two men that were seen jogging in the area as well. One thing that police quickly figured out, and this was on day six or seven, that the two men spotted in the area jogging, they were not of immediate concern because they were spotted in the area in the early morning hours. Right. In the time that they knew Linda Moore was still alive. Again, it's not one of the, again, it's one of those details in a case that are it's not clear when they say two men are spotted jogging or are they jogging together or are they separate in this case we know that they were jogging together based off of eyewitness reports and what's really cool here in this situation captain is the eyewitness reports of the two men jogging were so good that they were actually able to track down these two men so we have all of this movement and all of these people based off of eyewitness statements that police need to track down. And after four or five days into their investigation, they had checked off 13 of 15 boxes. The only two boxes that remained unchecked was the man that we just described with the knapsack and the glasses and the two joggers. Several days later, they identified the two joggers. Now the joggers again were seen around nine o'clock at the latest in the morning. We know Linda Moore was still alive at that time, so that's not of great concern. The odd thing, though, is these two men were seen again later that afternoon. This was after Linda Moore was already found. So, again, not of great concern, but now you have two people that you know to be jogging in the area. Right. Even though you know that they're seen when she's still alive, and then later seen after she has been killed and found, you want to talk to them because what did they see while they were out jogging? If it was somebody that was watching the house, how long had they been watching the house for? The key thing here, though, is out of all of those eyewitnesses that come forward, what's the number one thing that's missing from this equation? 
No one ever see says that they see Stephen Moore's vehicle at the home. Right. During the time in question. Nobody says that they see Stephen Moore coming in and out of the home during the time in question. So they track down these two joggers and What's interesting to me here, Captain, is unfortunately one of these joggers had left the area. So the joggers turned out to be two brothers who lived in the area. Can't trust those brothers. Nope. And the reason why they were able to identify the brothers is the one man was wearing a shirt that after they started talking to some locals, law enforcement, they figured out that the shirt was some kind of reference to the Navy, either a naval ship or a Navy base, something of that nature. Well, they tracked down a, an individual that says, a relative of mine, my young relative, he just left for the Navy. Right. He was out with his brother, and his brother tells him the full story. That day, they would go jogging together on occasion. They were out jogging that morning, and then they went out jogging again that afternoon. The male in the Navy shirt, he had already gone overseas to be stationed at Subic Bay. Well, we've heard that name before, SBTC, at the training facility in Subic Bay. This individual is of particular interest to me in this case. So this is a young man. He was approximately 19 years of age at the time of Linda Moore's murder. So it'd be capable of a vicious attack and an attack to happen very quickly. Here's why he's of particular interest to me. He does not have a great alibi for that early afternoon that Linda Moore was killed. The brother tells law enforcement, we went out jogging together. We came back home. All right. We went out for a nice long jog, had a great time. Right. My brother wanted to go back out. So we went back out on a second jog that morning. I got tired. I decided to turn around. He continued on. The police reach out to this individual after he's identified and talk to him at the training facility, the Naval training base. And he backs up some of his brother's story. But again, his brother can't account for his brother after he left the jog and returned home. So he tells authorities that after his brother left him, he continued on his jog. He went back to his old high school where he visited with some people for a period of time. He went to a friend's house where he stayed for a couple of hours, just relaxing. His friend was gone at work for approximately two and a half to three hours. And before his friend came back, he decided to leave and he went to his friend's house, another friend's home. This was a former teacher of his who happened to live very near Linda Moore's home. And some stories they say across the street, I've looked up her home. It looks like it would be impossible for this home to be across the street. Right. But this would be very nearby. And this is after Linda Moore was discovered. The friend of this man who rena- who will remain anonymous says that when he was there, she brings up to him, there was a murder today across the, the street. 
One of my neighbors was killed. She's reacting to this news. He is going on and on and talking about, well, he's getting ready to go overseas, how excited he is for to go into the Navy. She says the odd thing was that she could understand he was excited to leave and excited to go into the Navy and go overseas. He had never been overseas before. But she's trying to bring up her concern about this murder that just took place in close proximity to her home. She lives by herself. Right. And he doesn't seem to, it seems lost on him. He doesn't seem to notice her concern nor want to talk about it with her. Which is very odd behavior. A little bit. So then he leaves for the Navy. He's not identified as one of the joggers until after he's already sent overseas to Subic Bay. Before he is identified, he has a phone call with that same lady that lives near Linda Moore's home. And one of the first thing he says to her on the phone is, hey, whatever happened with that murder case, that that murder investigation near your home? Right. And so she tells police she's kind of weirded out because face to face in person the afternoon that it happened, he seemed to not care, not give two winks about it. Two shits. Two shits. A couple days later, several shits are given about this. Piles of shits. He's very interested in the homicide investigation. Did they Mm. ever catch that guy? Do they have any leads? Do they know who did it? What are the police saying? So that's a very different reaction than what he was giving a couple days earlier. I'd love to be able to question some of the other individuals he was claiming to be with during that day. When the authorities talked to his supervisors at the Navy, at the training center, mm-hmm. they tell him that he arrived with very few belongings, as one would when they go into the military. But of those belongings, he arrives there with a dark-colored knapsack and clothing and glasses that are not terribly unlike the description given by eyewitnesses of the man that they still never identified. So out of 15 boxes to check off, now after identifying both of these joggers, they've checked off 14 of 15, but not the 15th box. Who is this mysterious guy that we give the description of five foot eight inches to five foot ten inches tall, Caucasian male, wearing glasses, age twenty to twenty-five? So these witnesses are spotting a younger man. The man that we're talking about is 19 years of age when he enters the Navy. And I sit here, Captain, and I tell you, I have to wonder, given that this guy has no alibi, no solid alibi for that afternoon. And when and we know he was in the area. We know he was in the area by his own account and by his brother's admission and by eyewitness statements as being a jogger that morning, and then later that day. Where was he in between there? Well, I was at the school visiting friends. Then I went to my friend's house and watched TV, laid down, relaxed for a little bit. No, my friend wasn't there. He was at work. Then I went and visited a former teacher who lives nearby. She's concerned about the murder. He doesn't seem to care. Goes off to the Navy. Now, all of a sudden, it's a big deal. But also has a similar outfit to what one eyewitness saw that day. You have to wonder. And there were several people that came forward and said, you know what? Linda Moore was a, was an attractive woman. 
it did not go unnoticed when she would be outside sunbathing at this property that was in full view of the road. You have to wonder, was he out there jogging and then he goes out there, his brother turns around and now something else has piqued his interest. He sees something else. They never find the hunting knife that they believe that killed Linda Moore. And they have the Navy issue a lie detector test to this individual. Mm. The Navy says that he fails badly. Okay. <laughs> they're, not, they're not even trying to uh, fails hide badly. this or protect him. The Navy does disagree with the police of, of the items that arrived with this man. Right. Uh, they say, yes, they are similar. They are not terribly unlike what your eyewitnesses are saying, but they are saying that there's slight variations, you know, different difference of color and things of that nature. Uh, the glasses that he arrived with were not cheap glasses, but again, I don't think that means you can't factor that into your eyewitness statement. In my opinion, I, we sit here all of these years later. I still think this is the best possible lead in this case. This 19 year old man that happened to leave and, and it's not happened to leave the area after the murder. He knew he was leaving and he knew he was going a great distance away for a long period of time. Yeah. So if he was struggling with any kind of urges to, or any kind of fantasies to commit some crime, he would know, Hey, I have this window where if I commit a crime, I'll be gone in a couple days and there'll be none the wiser. And I know that you can't use the lie detector in the court of law, but I think it's a good barometer, and I think they need to dive more into this individual. One individual that we talked about at length when we covered the Connecticut River Valley killer case was Michael Nicolau, and he was an individual that burst onto the scene as a possible suspect because years later he goes down to Florida and he kills his wife and then kills himself. And his previous wife before that was missing for a period of time. He lived in this general area during the times of the river Valley cases. So he becomes posthumously, he becomes a suspect in the river Valley cases. He does not look unlike the description that was given of the man seen, the unidentified man seen near Linda Moore's home on the day in question. However, one thing I was shocked to learn, Captain, is in further digging of the Linda Moore case, it appears that Michael Nicolau didn't just burst onto the scene like we thought and like the story as the story is generally told after killing himself, after killing his wife years later, it sounds like he was being looked at by police, not for the Linda Moore case, but for some of a, some of the other river Valley cases. Right. I sit here 2023. I can't say with absolute certainty this case. And the reason why we chose to cover it separately is it felt very different. And there was a lot more information about this case than there are the other unsolved cases in the River Valley cases. And that simply because of the evidence. The nature of this homicide is different. It took place within a home. She's found relatively quickly. 
We don't lose evidence due to time or to the location. And so this case felt very different. And I know that people say that you have to talk about them at the same time. You can't talk about one case without talking about the other. I think we probably have a situation where the Linda Moore case is not tied to the others. I think that some of those other cases are probably connected to one another that were committed by the same individual. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them share similarities beyond the believed injuries, beyond the belief of the way that the victim was killed. But a lot of these individuals, too, were last seen in the early afternoon hours of the day. They disappear. They were hitchhiking. Or a vehicle broke down or had some kind of vehicle trouble. Those victims, I believe, ended up in a car or a vehicle or a truck with the killer. And he, at some point, turned on them and attacked them and killed them in an isolated area, took them to an isolated area where they were killed and later found. Well, and you were saying that a lot of these victims, because they were found later, there was decomposition, which would make the stab patterns and the attack patterns a little bit harder to identify. So to say that the Linda Moore case is connected to them because of the stab patterns, I I just don't know if that makes a lot of sense. And one individual that we talked about too, that's always kind of been linked to the River Valley cases is a man by the name of Delbert Tallman. Well, Delbert Tallman is linked to the River Valley cases because he was a suspect in a case that oddly enough is not, believed to be a victim of the River Valley Killer. Heidi Martin, in 1984, May 21st, her body was found behind the Heartland Elementary School. She was stabbed four times. Eventually, Delbert Tallman confesses to being at the scene and witnessing the murder, that he sees the bad guy kill her in the woods He approaches the body afterwards to see if he could help. By that point, she's already dead. Mm -hmm. And once police get onto him, they arrest him. And that story then changes from him being there and witnessing it to he did it himself. Delbert Tolman faced a lot of mental challenges, right? A lot, a lot of challenges. And I believe there's a chance that police encouraged him to expand on his story and change his story. And they probably rightfully so, right? Isn't it difficult to sit across from a guy and him to tell you that, yeah, I was there, but I didn't do it. I didn't kill her. I witnessed it. Don't know who did it. I approached her after the bad guy left, but he's acquitted. He's, he goes to trial for this case. that's never 100% connected to the river Valley cases. And he's acquitted. And the problem with Delbert Tallman being the River Valley killer is he's arrested, I believe it's hours or the next day after they find her body. And he's held in jail for over a year until his trial takes place to which he's acquitted. Well, one of our victims, Ellen Ruth Freed, She's abducted July 22nd, 1984. 
Heidi Martin's body was found May 21st, 1984. Delbert Tallman is locked up in jail shortly thereafter. And he's in jail at the time of Ellen Ruth Freed's abduction, who is believed to be one of the River Valley Killer's victims. So he doesn't fit great into this whole equation of being the possible River Valley Killer. And I also don't believe that the person that killed Linda Moore is responsible for many of those other murders. What I see here is I think we have a younger assailant, a younger killer that behaved and acted impulsively on something that he saw. He saw an opportunity and he took it. He probably watched Linda Moore outside that day. The phone rings a couple of times. She goes inside, comes back out. He witnesses this on more than one occasion and decides the next time she goes in, she's probably alone. There's probably nobody home. He decides to follow her in. And then the attack takes place and he flees. And I think the guy that, that was looked at and that they should revisit, even all of these years later, is the guy that was thousands of miles away being trained at a naval base. We want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage. Make sure you check out our website, truecrimegarage.com, and sign up on the mailing list. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for these beautiful, beautiful listeners? Yes, we do, Captain. This week we are recommending The Shadow of Death, The Hunt for the Connecticut River Valley Killer by Philip Ginsburg. This is available on all formats. You're going to want to check this one out. This is the most complete book put together on this serial killer that is still unidentified and still unknown check out the shadow of death you'll find that great title and many more wonderful recommendations on our website true crime garage on the recommended page and until next week be good be kind and don't litter The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 